Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. Minicoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out Minicoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today is Wednesday, July 20th, 2022, and this is the momentous 100th episode of the podcast. And I originally intended to have Bruce Fenton on, who is running for the U.S. Senate out of New Hampshire, and he is inspired by Ron Paul. I don't know a lot about him, but want to find out more about him and allow you to find out more about him. He will be on the show. We just had some scheduling snafus, and originally I thought we were confirmed. That might have been my mistake, but we're in communication, and he will be on probably next week. Definitely will have Scott Horton here for you on Friday. And what I thought I would do on this 100th episode is just reflect on where we are and where we've been since the podcast started back on November 12th, 2021. And in some ways, many things have happened. And in other ways, we're right where we were and have been since March of 2020. So I'll get into that. For everyone who's discovered the podcast, become a subscriber or a subscribe to my email list recently, anytime in the past few months, I thought I would just remind everyone that episode one of Tom Mullen Talks Freedom was with the great Kevin Gutzman, and it was at a time where Joe Biden had just announced his vaccine mandates for all employers of over 100 people, I believe. There are 50 or 100 people. I can't remember. And I wanted to do that first episode to kind of set one theme that we're going to come back to and we have come back to over the course of the podcast, which is how damaging the New Deal was and continues to be to not only our economy, but really our society. I really view the New Deal as a pivotal point in American history. Now, you can go back to 1789 if you want to find where the problem started. But really what happened with the New Deal was a revolution, as Garrett Garrett, or Garrett, however you pronounce his name, said it was. And I say that because, number one, it completely subverted the Constitution, and that it transferred the legislative power for all intents and purposes to the executive. Congress still passes laws, and they have a lot of debates, and they certainly send a lot of money to their friends. But as far as most rulemaking, most legislating, that's now done by the executive branch through these various regulatory agencies. And while there were one or two that wrote a few rules before, the New Deal was where we really set up the structure based on Mussolini's fascism. And, you know, as I've said many times, the worst president in United States history was a big fan of Mussolini. Used to call him that admirable Italian gentleman and other such 
phrases until his political advisors told him to knock it off. But really, the idea was that our constitutional system, as bad as it already was by 1932, was just too troublesome. It was too hard for some great leader like FDR with the cigarette holder and the fake mid-Atlantic accent that no people have ever spoken naturally anywhere in the world, that he couldn't go and just do whatever he wanted, issue whatever orders that he wanted for people to follow. This bicameral legislature and all these checks and balances really got in the way of all that. So the New Deal attempted to make the United States as close to a fascist state as the cigarette holder could get away with. And it's kind of like what Alexander Hamilton tried to do at the Constitutional Convention. He knew he couldn't get away with a monarchy, even though that's what he'd prefer. He said that Britain, the government that they had just fought a long war to separate themselves from, was the greatest in the world and that they should emulate it as close as possible as they could. So, of course, he wasn't going to get an American king, but he was going to get a president who would come as close to a monarch as the people would tolerate. And, of course, he and James Madison did not get their way on on as powerful a central government as they wanted. But FDR came along a little over 100 years later and pretty much solidified just about everything that Hamilton or Madison could have wanted at that original convention. Madison wanted Congress to be able to veto state laws, and that was voted down in a quite lopsided fashion. In fact, the last vote was unanimous against it. But what the centralizers couldn't get at the Constitutional Convention through Congress was eventually usurped by the Supreme Court, which started striking down state laws, especially after the 14th Amendment. And I shouldn't say after the 14th Amendment like it was the next day. Really, during the 20th century, the 14th Amendment was used as justification for the Supreme Court to start doing what those at the Constitutional Convention had very clearly rejected, and that was for the federal government to overrule state law. And they did this through something called the Incorporation Doctrine, a legal theory whereby the word liberty in the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment brought the whole Bill of Rights to bear against the states. And in other words, Previous to this legal theory becoming popular with the court, the Federal Bill of Rights, the Bill of Rights to the U.S. Constitution, those first 10 amendments, were always only considered to apply to the federal government. And by suddenly starting to interpret the 14th Amendment in this novel way, the government found a way to do what it never was delegated power to do, the delegates to the Constitutional Convention clearly rejected, which was for the federal government to be able to strike down state laws. So that was one way that the federal government acquired more centralized power, pretty much made the Tenth Amendment a dead letter. But as far as the vaccine mandates are concerned, This one violated another principle of the Constitution, and that's what the Supreme Court justices, in some cases early on and again recently called the non-delegation doctrine, which is basically just what the Constitution is. It says that the Congress, which has delegated all legislative power exclusively, cannot delegate that power to the executive. They can't set up some federal agency and say, go ahead, you write the rules. So that's really what the vaccine mandates violate, is that this wasn't even a law passed by Congress. This was just a rule that was going to not even be set up by the FDA, believe it or not, but OSHA. And although OSHA wasn't created until 1970 and therefore 
30 some years after the New Deal, it was created in the image of the New Deal. It was the precedent set by the New Deal of setting up these myriad federal agencies all out there legislating basically on the orders of the president. And after a while, really regardless of the orders of the president, that's really where we are now. And OSHA was created and operates on pretty much the same fascist principle that the executive can just issue fiat orders that don't have to be passed by the bicameral legislature and then signed by the president. So, you know, not that the Constitution is any wonderful God-given thing, as some fanatics believe, but it's a heck of a lot better than just the orders of one person. At least there's somewhat of an adversarial process, however corrupt, in Congress that provides some resistance to new federal power. And let's not forget that even if Congress had passed a law mandating vaccines, that certainly is not a power that's delegated to the Congress or the executive. So it would have been unconstitutional even if they had adhered to the non-delegation doctrine. It's just awful in every single way. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you're enjoying the content here at Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can support my efforts a couple of ways by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. You can join my Patreon for as little as $3 per month and get machine transcripts of every episode as well as access to my members-only MeWe group or become an all-access patron and get my paid subscriber-only articles and videos. You can even become a VIP patron to get all of that, plus a free copy of the Tom Mullen book of your choice. Now, if you prefer Substack, I also post my paid subscriber-only content there, and you can find links to all of the above at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. Become a supporter of Tom Mullen Talks Freedom today. And now let's get back to our episode. It's not enough. It's not enough that I did it for love. It's not enough. It's not enough that I did it for love. It's not enough. Now the Supreme Court, when they it did end up ruling on that, and I had Kevin Goodsman back for a later episode to discuss that ruling, really they didn't strike down that mandate. What they said was they had been asked to rule on a stay based on this still being decided in a lower court, and they decided to grant the stay based on their opinion that the mandate was likely to fail. So. They still might have another bite at the apple on this. I'm not sure if that that lower court proceeding ever completed or not. So that's something that I'd be happy if someone knows and wants to write in, comment on the show notes page of this podcast. Let me know. But that's how we started the podcast, and I thought it was a great start to have such a momentous topic. The good news in... The decision that the Supreme Court made was that they mentioned the non-delegation doctrine again from what Kevin told me for the first time in a long time, maybe decades. The bad news is, of course, they didn't just strike down the government's ability, Congress's ability to do some delegating. They kind of said, well, you can't do too much. So the glass half empty way is that they've just again affirmed and set yet another precedent that Congress can delegate some of its legislative power to the executive, the glass-half-full way to look at it would be that while it's the first resistance any Supreme Court has put up to this rampant expansion of executive power and that maybe it's the beginning of a trend. But really, as I've always said, if you want anything like the Constitution in operation, you have to strike down the New Deal root and branch. It's all got to go. 
And people say, well, that's very extreme and that would be undoing, you know, a hundred years of precedent and a fell swoop. Well, that's what they did when they created the New Deal. So why can't we do it the other way? This is my problem with conservatism. Conservatism is always too afraid to change anything too drastically. Well, guess what? The left changes everything in a week, one day, one Supreme Court case, and boom, you have a whole new regime in place, and then you're going to chip away at it with this slow and steady. It's not going to work. We need radical change for less government. We need a revolution for less government. We need to repeal the New Deal and close every one of those agencies, the FDA, the SEC, the FCC, the USDA, all of them. So that's where I am. <laughs> Easy for me to say, right? So where are we with COVID? It seems like it's kind of gone away, but it maybe it never will. At the time when we started the podcast, I can't remember if Governor Kathy Hokum's new mask mandate had yet been put in place. I don't think it had. I think she was talking about it. And she eventually did put a second mask mandate in place. Now, the history had been that it had been in place since 2020. And in May of 2021, conveniently right before his daughter's wedding or graduation, something, Andrew Cuomo, that once hero, now disgraced governor, his daughter's graduation or wedding was about to take place, and the mask mandates were lifted just before that. So how convenient is that? And we had somewhat of a normal summer in 2021, and then come the end of the year, either in November or December of 2021, Hokum puts this mask mandate back in place. So, of course, I'm in New York, one of the worst states in the union as far as government is concerned. So not a surprise. What was a pleasant surprise was that my county of Niagara County, like seven of the Western New York counties, made a formal announcement and put on their website they were not going to enforce that mask mandate. So talk about federalism and how things can be different depending on the state that you live in. Even here in deep blue New York State, and believe me, it's it's every bit as bad as you've heard. It mattered what county you lived in. So that was interesting. And here in Niagara County, really after May of 2021, and I have been to Florida since then twice, it really wasn't much different than living in Florida as far as any of the COVID restrictions were concerned. Nobody in Niagara County followed them. I mean, you would find people wearing masks as you would in Florida, but they weren't mandated and the majority of people didn't. The majority of businesses did not require them here. And it's very strange because anyone who takes the time to look on a map can see that Niagara County is a rather small county. And I'm only, I'd say, 15 minutes from the Erie County line. Most of that's country driving. I live out in the country. But you could be at the New York Beer Project, which is on the Niagara County line, and see a room full of people without masks and literally drive three minutes to the next restaurant in Erie County and everyone's wearing masks. Even walking down the sidewalk outside in the summertime with masks, or in the springtime, I should say because I think that was lifted before summer, obviously. So very interesting that, <laughs> and no one's curious about this. No one's curious that we didn't have this horrible disaster here in Niagara County, just a stone's throw away from where people were absolutely fanatic. And of course, that goes for the United States in general. No one is concerned that, or even curious about the fact that we don't have this Mass graveyard in South Dakota, Florida, Iowa, Texas. Florida and Texas get a lot of attention, and South Dakota gets a little because they never closed down, by the way. Never. Not even in 2020. But no one talks about Iowa. 
out there in the Midwest, they were open before Texas was. All mandates dropped. No one want, is curious why that isn't a disaster. And I know some midwit hearing this might post on the comments that some statistic trying to tease out that things were worse in Iowa or Florida or Texas than they were in some other state. Well, first of all, number one, those should be the worst states. Okay. It's not that they should have just been 10% worse or 5%. Or if you look at it this way, you shouldn't have to go to the statistics to find out that these states had a much worse time. They should be on the news every day. Their hospitals should be under siege. We should be seeing just still a parade of bodies coming out of these states because they have not had restrictions since February of 2021. And neither have we since May of 2021 here in Niagara County. So anybody who's even in good faith thinking that the COVID restrictions did anything, you've really got to think of it that way. You shouldn't need a study. You shouldn't need any kind of peer-reviewed RCT, randomized controlled trial study to prove that, you know, Florida turned out worse. It should be obvious and it's not. And the fact that it's not should make it obvious to any honest person that the COVID restrictions did nothing as far as mitigating COVID, but they did do something as far as wrecking civilization, something we're still living with. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, it helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. How could I think about love with a girl like you? I should say all of these economic problems that we're having, inflation, that all goes back to COVID and the lockdowns. Of course, the inflation is because the Fed printed so much money to paper over and allow people to stay home and do nothing. I mean, without the Fed to do that, of course, we could never have had the lockdowns. But that decision to do them has as I predicted, just days after they announced the lockdowns, I predicted that this would cause far more damage economically than even the Great Depression. I think that prediction has aged very well. And incidentally, on the Fed, and those of you who have been here for a while, not even since the beginning of the podcast, know that I've had Tom Luongo on several times, who is an Austrian, but who thinks that you know, things are a little more complicated than a lot of us Fed haters would would believe in a vacuum, and that actually the Fed is trying to fight the Davos crowd, the Great Reset. I've been binge listening to a cat named Jeff Snyder, who I think has influenced Tom, at least on the whole idea of the euro dollar being very significant. And Snyder's thesis is that the reason, and this is something that's bothered me, and I've had Bob Murphy on and hope to get him back sometime soon. He's very busy doing a lot of podcasts 
over and above a day job and being early in the family business, so I know how that is. But Snyder's thesis is that even the 2008 quantitative easing money tsunami was not inflationary. And I'm using the word inflationary in the true sense of the word, increasing the supply of money and credit. He's saying that despite the trillions that the Fed printed, that when you put that together with the euro dollar and everything that happens outside the U.S. banking system, and euro dollar means exactly that, dollar reserves outside the U.S. banking system. It has nothing to do with the euro currency, and it, although it started probably in Europe in the 1950s, uh, it, it, doesn't, it isn't just limited to Europe. It's any U.S. dollar reserves in a foreign bank. Even a foreign bank in the United States, as I understand, now that I've listened to more of his argument, but that when you put it together, that quantitative easing was not that significant in increasing the money supply. And therefore, what we really have is this malaise because of a shortage of dollars and, and banks willing to lend dollars worldwide. So I'm not saying that I wholeheartedly agree with that. I don't wholeheartedly reject it. I think it's an interesting thing to think about, and I'm going to follow that that theory to see if it explains things better than simply the Austrian theory. Now, this is not really a rejection of the Austrian theory. He's not saying that the Austrian theory is wrong. What he is saying is that the inflation of money and credit that the Austrian theory talks about never actually happened in 2008 or in 2020. So that's hard to believe. And when I look at the size of the euro dollar market, it seems like it peaked at about 87% of the domestic US dollar market, which means it almost doubles it. And that certainly would take a big chunk out of the percentage increase in money supply when you consider all those dollars. My only problem is that even if you cut the inflation in half, it was still humongous compared to anything the Fed had ever done before in both cases, in 2008 and in 2020. So that's where I have a problem with the theory. But again, it's an interesting one. I'm hoping to get Jeff on the show. I will try to do that and see if I can ask him some of those questions and see what he comes back with. So I guess the last thing I'll talk about today as far as where we are in terms of the world, the United States and the rest of the world, and any chance for a free society. And we've had since the beginning of the podcast, of course, this beginning of the Ukraine war, which if you'll remember, just for two solid months, I've really never seen anything like this. I track this for two solid months. No major national news website had a story about anything other than Ukraine above the fold, as they call it. Above the fold is an expression that originated with the old paper newspaper where, you know, they were always folded in half. So you put the stories you want to sell the newspaper above the fold. That's the ones that most people are going to see. And you wouldn't believe, I know a little bit about websites and how people read websites. I don't know as much about the newspaper paper business, but I know that when I was writing for the Washington Times communities, they would tell us that after 400 words, you lose like 70% of the readers. They <laughs> don't read past 400 words. So whatever you want most people to hear, you got to get in those first 400 words. And then as far as if they have to scroll down, you lose like another 80% of who's left after that first 400 words. So you lose, if you have to scroll down on a website, almost nobody's going to see those stories in percentage terms. So for two solid months after February 25th or whatever the beginning day of that invasion was, there were no stories on any website above the fold about anything but Ukraine and how any 
semi-lucid American could not feel they were being propagandized. I mean, this is what sends me into despair sometimes. But that's all mitigated now. In fact, if you notice, we haven't heard about how the Ukrainians are just kicking the Russians' butt anymore, have we? In fact, it was grudgingly admitted that they've taken over one of the two Donbass republics. The Russians have that under their complete control. They will eventually have the other one. And it's really a matter now of how much territory the Russians are going to have at the end of this war. So certainly those two republics will not be part of Ukraine anymore. Whether the Russians go all the way to Odessa, which is on the western side of the Black Sea, and then cut off Ukraine completely from the Black Sea, that remains to be seen. And that might be a matter of whether anyone comes to their senses and you know, tries to negotiate a deal before the Russians get there. That's really the big question there. But that's another thing that I just can't believe Americans have not acknowledged about what how much they were lied to. There was never any significant Ukrainian counteroffensive anywhere. That just never happened. Now, this is a real war, and unlike the wars that the United States Empire has fought, This is against a country that can fight back. It had one of the largest militaries in Europe, if not the largest military in Europe, outside of Russia. And, of course, the Ukrainians have inflicted heavy losses on the Russians. I mean, heavy compared to anything that happened in one of the U.S. wars, stomping on some poor third-world country. And, of course... There's no fault found with the Ukrainian people fighting invaders in their homeland. The Ukrainian government, on the other hand, which is just pretty much playing ball with the U.S. empire and to the detriment of their own people, and that includes before the war started when they were mercilessly bombing, shelling the Donbass region on behalf of the empire, trying to go... Russia into making this error and invading, something that the United States has been doing at least since the U.S. Civil War. Actually, before that, did that in the Mexican-American War, goaded the Mexicans into firing on their troops. Then they did it to the Confederates, although the Confederates were lousy too. But, of course, we wouldn't have been a lot better off without a war that killed a million Americans, almost a million. And, you know, right on through history, up to, again, the cigarette holder goading the Japanese into bombing Pearl Harbor after he gave them little other chance, little other choice. So in any case, we now have this unfortunate war, but it's kind of interesting in terms of what's going on as a result of that, as a result of the Great Reset and this full-court press on Russia that's been going on for all of this century, overthrowing governments on its border. Certainly, Ukraine in 2014 wasn't the first, wasn't even the first time they overthrew a government in Ukraine. They had done that in 2004 and again in 2014 to put Western puppets in there. And they tried to do it in Kazakhstan and failed. And of course, the Regime change war in Syria also would have taken away one of the two most important Russian ports, warm water port, something they have very few of. The only other one on this side of the Eurasian continent being the one at Sevastopol and Crimea. So again, how any American can think that's a coincidence that the United States just had these overwhelming humanitarian feelings for the people of Syria and the people of Ukraine and just had to have regime changes there for humanitarian purposes while they'd been buddies with the barbaric Saudis for so many decades. I mean, anyone who could believe that can believe it was just a coincidence that these two humanitarian efforts would take place in countries strategically important to Russia they're just beyond hope. But I just close with kind of the way the world has looked since 
the beginning of my life. I was born in 1965, and for the first 26 years of my life, it was the Cold War, and it was basically a bipolar world. It was us against them, the evil empire, as Reagan called it, and I think called it correctly, which was the Soviet empire with half the world communist, and then the free world little overdone there, I think, but freer anyway, the freer world led by the United States. And that all ended in 1991 when I was just turned 26, because I think it was in December of 1991 that the Soviet Union officially broke apart. And then from 1991 until 2001, we had what was again called the New World Order. A lot of people make a big deal about Bush's speech saying New World Order. I mean, this is a saying that's been around for hundreds of years. I think it's on our money in Latin. Let me check. I'm going to get a dollar bill out. I'm pretty sure that somewhere on there it says Novus whatever. Maybe not on the $1 bill. Oh, yeah, there it is. Novus Ordo. I can't read this with my... I don't have the light on in here, so... Forgive me, but look on the back of a $1 bill and you'll see New World Order in Latin. And it's not like it just got there. It's been on there as as long as I can remember. But in any case, from 1991 until 2001, we had a period of kind of hope. I always felt like we weren't making the most out of the end of the Cold War. I had lived at the Cold War my whole life. I was a young adult at that time, didn't know a heck of a lot. Not that I do now, but I know more than I did. And I thought this was a tremendous opportunity and we should be doing everything we could to be friends with the Russians. I had this idea that, you know, these people in Washington might have our interests at heart because certainly it was in our best interests to solidify a friendship with the Russians once the Soviet Union fell. But of course, the empire didn't do that. And then the next demarcation over the course of my life, I would say, happened in 2001. And then we had the war on terror for the next 20 years. And that was another new paradigm where we had a police state and a constant state of foreign war, bleeding us dry, accomplishing nothing, not even fighting the people who actually perpetrated 9-11, not that would have justified a war anyway. I mean, this was not a an act of war by another country or even by an army. It was a terrorist attack. It was a crime. I remember Ron Paul tried to have letters of mark and reprisal issued, which is the thing to do. Something like what the Israelis did with the people who attacked their Olympic team. They just sent real nasty people out to get rid of them all. And they did. But what damage hadn't been done by the New Deal and the world wars, and the world wars to me really were the end of Western civilization as as we knew it before then. Incidentally, I'll do a future podcast on this, but I want I think that Western civilization peaked in 1888 in the United States. And there's several reasons for that. We had our greatest president in history in the fourth year of his first term, his best term, and that was Grover Cleveland, of course, vetoing bills left and right, mostly bills for veterans who used to be looked on as welfare bums looking for a handout, which they were. Grover Cleveland vetoed them all, vetoed disaster relief for the sainted farmers. He refused to take the United States to war in Cuba, despite tremendous pressure. And if you've read my book, Where Do Conservatives and Liberals Come From? You know that the United States had wanted, or I should say the conservatives, the nationalist conservatives in the United States, had wanted that war with Spain since the days of Alexander Hamilton. That's why he wanted that big army that he tried to get established permanently during the quasi-war with France, he said openly that he wanted to attack Spain and take their possessions away. So, yes, Grover Cleveland was definitely the best president. The United States had abolished slavery by then, had ended the 
horrible period of reconstruction over the South. So you had Western civilization at probably its apex. The Republican Party had already made some inroads in chipping away at the free market, which was their raison d'etre to expand the role of government, protectionist tariffs, government infrastructure. You know, the roads used to be privately owned and maintained. And of course, the Republicans ended all that with their domination during the second half of the 20th century. But that wasn't complete yet in 1888. And you had this Democratic president that, in my opinion, was a better Jeffersonian than Jefferson, even in his second term, and even compared to Jefferson's first term. So yeah, I think Western civilization peaked in 1888. Afterwards, they elected a Republican president who gave the Republicans in Congress a lot of what they wanted, blew up a big bubble with railroads and all kinds of economic interventions, which led to the Panic of 1893. Luckily, the best president in U.S. history was reelected in 1892, took office in 1893, and was able to end that crisis, despite what the historians will tell you he did. And it had something to do with silver as well. I'll get into all that on a different podcast. I don't know how I got here, but getting back to my timeline... We had 2001 through 2020, pretty much the war on terror years. And you notice that the TSA has never gone away. It's never caught a terrorist. It fails its own tests, which you'd think they'd be smart enough to rig so they pass them. But somebody over there in Homeland Security really thinks that they should make these tests somewhat realistic. And this department fails to detect over 90% of the dangerous items they're supposed to be looking for on every one of their tests, yet they're still there after 20 years. Every terrorist that has tried to get by them, whether it's the shoe bomber, the underwear bomber, there haven't been many, but everybody who's tried to get by them has breezed right through, and yet this thing is never going to go away. So nothing about the war on terror is going to go away. Now any bank transaction where you want to withdraw more than $5,000. It used to be 10 and now it's 5. You know, that has the eyes of the government on it. They're reading all your emails or at least they're collecting them. All your phone calls, all that electronic surveillance that Edward Snowden heroically exposed, it's never going away. At least not until some the pitchforks get come out. And that needs to happen. And then we started a new era in 2020, the COVID regime, the Great Reset. I think that's all part of the same criminal enterprise. I do believe COVID-19 is real. I had it. I lost my sense of taste and smell. I was extremely skeptical about the hype around the virus. I, I do think it was a real virus. But of course, the response to it was just ridiculous and hard to believe that even a hysterical government official living in a bubble like Anthony Fauci does or like our state officials do would believe that was really necessary or that it was going to be effective. And of course, elements of that are never going to go away. I'm sure there's going to be another lockdown sometime. If it's not this year, maybe next year, probably a climate emergency lockdown. We've just got to, everyone's got to stay home for a month to decrease our carbon output, no matter how ridiculous that is. When you think about even if you buy the entire man-made global warming theory, which I do not, by the way, and I'm not saying there's nothing to the amount of carbon we produce. I don't deny it's a greenhouse gas and maybe it's doing something. I'm pretty skeptical that it's doing what they say, especially since when you compare what the politicians say to what the scientists that they cite actually say, there's a vast gap between those two things. And even if what the politicians say, which is much more alarmist and drastic than what the scientists say, even if what the politicians say was true, 
There's no reason to believe that any of the things they say that we should do is going to solve the problem. Certainly, there's no reason to believe that letting the government be in charge of this at all is going to solve the problem, if it is a problem. What evidence do we have? How'd they do with the drug problem? Is it better or worse than it was 100 years ago when all the drugs were legal? How'd they do with the education problem? Is it better or worse since the government, the federal government, took it over in 1979, 1980? How'd they do making healthcare affordable? Is it more affordable for the average person now than it was in 1925? No. So there's absolutely no reason to believe that the government could solve the climate problem it describes, even if what it describes were the real problem. So that's why I said at the very beginning, not much has changed since 2020 because we're still in, I guess you could call this the Great Reset. If 2001 to 2020 could be described generally as the war on terror years, then Uh, 2020 and beyond, we'll just call the Great Reset until such time as it's defeated. But I'm not all that hopeful, to be honest with you. The problem that we face is that most people believe in government as a virtuous institution. And as long as they believe that, and, and I'm old enough to remember when Hillary Clinton was basically trying to get a version of Obamacare passed in the 1990s. And everyone high-fived each other when it was defeated, and they just kept at it and kept at it. And 16 years later, it was the law of the land. So it, I think the problem is it takes a lot of energy to resist this kind of thing. The truckers, that was very heroic in Canada, What's going on in the Netherlands is inspiring. There are these mass protests all over the world, but these people can just sit back and wait and let the people exhaust themselves. And then they come back and they get what they want until the day comes when people change their minds about the way they look at government in general and decide they want a free society, which means that these governments all over the world are gutted to the core. I mean, this is not a job for a scalpel. This is a job for a sledgehammer. But as long as people believe that the government should take care of them from cradle to grave, well, that makes them kind of the government's pets. And the government's going to treat you like pets, like livestock, actually. Sheep to be sheared or lambs to be slaughtered from time to time, until a critical mass of people finally decide that, in fact, government is not a virtuous institution. It's something to be suspicious of at every turn. As Thomas Paine said, even in its best state, but a necessary evil, and I take issue with the necessary part, until people start thinking of government that way, then we're never going to get out of this, and it's going to keep ratcheting up. So I think that's where we are. We're at the very beginning of the Great Reset. Really, when you look at these periods of history, 1945 to 1991, you got the Cold War, maybe 1949. We didn't figure out right away that it was a pretty dumb move to hand half of Europe to the Soviet Empire. Really, entering World War II was a pretty dumb move. Most people didn't want it until, of course, the cigarette holder badgered the Japanese into attacking us. I agree wholeheartedly with Pat Buchanan that the best outcome would have been for the Soviets and Nazis to just fight each other to the last Soviet and Nazi. And I'm going to set a reminder for myself for next June 6th, whenever that is, to do a podcast about D-Day This is another quasi-religious feast day in the American mythos that this was some wonderful thing. I think you could make an argument that even after World War II started, it would have been better not to invade France and, again, allow the Nazis to go and fight the Soviets to the last Nazi and the last Soviet. The empire is certainly showing it knows how to do that because that's what it's doing in Ukraine right now. 
Just imagine if we hadn't had a Cold War and half of Europe was not enslaved for 46 years or however many it was because we handed the Soviets half of Europe by making them our allies. So another digression, I like to slay sacred cows anywhere I see them, every chance I get, even if I have to go off point a little. But I'm going to leave it there. We're early in the Great Reset. Let's hope that civilization somehow or other gets off its knees and makes a comeback. I have some hope, but I have some despair balancing it off. So maybe in the comments, somebody could give me some encouragement. Give me some reasons to believe they're not going to get everything they want in the end like they have so many times in the past. And again, I'll have Scott Horton here to talk specifically about the Ukraine war, which is a central part of this whole evil plan. We'll get some updates, see if he can shed some light on exactly what's going on. I mean, you can't believe our news at all. You can't believe everything the Russians say, so it's very hard to even figure out what's happening there. And we'll also get his take on what other mischief the empire is up to, including queuing up a war with China, or at least other Cold War with China, something that I think even some libertarians are susceptible to going along with. They're not recognizing that they're talking about the Chinese the same way they talked about the Muslims in 2005. Does that mean that the Islamic terrorists were good guys? No, but certainly we would have been much better off if we didn't fight the war on terror, especially since we lost. But even had we won, we would have been better off had we not fought it. So that's it for today, folks. And again, if you're new and you haven't yet, check out TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. That is a page where you can sign up for either my Patreon or my Substack and support my efforts here. Thank you so much to all the people who've already joined. I just started the Substack, and that is surprisingly successful. I should tell you that all of the material, the paid subscriber-only material you get on the Substack, you can also get on the Patreon, and then the Patreon has a few more benefits. But I know some people just like Substack better, and they're subscribe to other people, and maybe that's easier, that all you'll get there are my paid subscriber-only articles and a few more perks on the Patreon. But either way, wherever you are, however you're supporting the show, thank you very much. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, that's free. So make sure you do that. It'll get delivered to your phone on whatever platform you listen to, Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, whatever. And also for new listeners, don't forget you can get a free copy of my ebook. It's the Fed Stupid. Paperback copies are also for sale on Amazon. And you can find links to download the free ebook or find the paperback at itsthefedstupid.com. So make sure you do that. Sign up on my email list and get your free copy of the book. And lastly, if you've enjoyed the music you've heard here on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at TomMullenSings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.